Welcome to the Corporate Treasury 101 podcast. We are joined today by Craig Chapman. He is a senior manager at Actualize Consulting and an expert in treasury systems, transformations and netting, which is what we continue to break down in this series of episodes. This one, by the way, is the second section of the full episode that we published last week. It is a smaller format in case you want to learn about netting step by step. In this episode, expect to learn how does netting and multilateral netting work, technically speaking, what are the tangible benefits of it from a company perspective, what are the link with cash flows and cash flow forecasting, what is the required setup to properly execute netting, we especially talk about technology and the location of it, for instance, and much more. If you like the episode, please do not hesitate to rate us on your favorite podcast app. It helps us a lot, the podcast as well, and it allows Hussam and I to invite more and more amazing guests like Craig. In other, other news, we published an ebook. If you were dreaming of finding the ABCs of Treasury in a book, well, do not search anymore. We got you covered. Head to the link in the description to download it, and the best part, it is completely free. By the way, the ebook just got downloaded by more than 100 people, so you might not want to miss that. With all that being said, let's get on with the show. So you mentioned multinational netting, multilateral netting, sorry. How exactly does multilateral netting work in, in the technicalities of it? Okay, let me try and... Um... At a high level, I'll walk you through a, a netting cycle. So there's two components to a netting cycle. It's processing the actual cycle itself. So all the different invoices for the, the month. And there's a process of closing the netting cycle. So to uh, process the netting cycle, the first thing you're going to do is open it up. So you're going to open the netting cycle, which means, okay, now I can input or import invoices it's eligible to start receiving invoices then my next step would be to import or input the preliminary fx rates that are going to apply to the cycle these can change too you can have a rate as of the fifth and then right before you close the cycle on the 30th you could put in a refreshed rate it's usually not uh, the prevailing rate every day it's usually a set date a uh, set date and a set rate, which uh, usually goes back to the accounting rate that's being used. So your accounting books are going to match what you're doing for netting. Um, then the next step is to generate preliminary statements. So I've input all the invoices. I put FX rates in. Now I'm going to spit out, let's say I have 50 participants. I'm going to spit out 50 statements for them to look at and say, as of right now, this is what it looks like. You're going to owe this or you're going to get paid this. And this is their chance to uh, dispute any items that they don't feel are correct with the other participants. Um, so these usually get generated out via email as of a certain date, and they have up to a certain date to resolve it or leave it as the final adjustment. So that's processing it all. And I'm just waiting for them to say, okay, or waiting for that date to expire. No more looking at it. Then there's a process of closing the cycle. So this is where you're gonna put in your final FX rates. 
you're going to process your intercompany or external settlements. So the settlements, when I say settlements, I'm saying, what do I owe or what am I going to get paid? That's the settlement I'm referring to. So it's one transaction per cycle, per participant. Then I have to release the payment if they're external. So I'm going to send them to the bank if it's actually an external payment. And then I'm going to distribute final statements. This is the best and final. This is what happened. And then you close the cycle, waiting to the next month to open it back up. When this is set up properly, it's really 99% automated. And it's just a ma matter of managing it and putting in the right inputs. Um, and then having somebody at corporate distribute the, the rates and send the payments out. But this becomes a very automated process uh, and efficient. Okay, um, quick question on my side, Craig. Um, in one of our recent interview with uh, Daniel from a, a big, fast consumer good company, uh, we talked about payment terms and the importance of when you establish a, a partnership with a, either a supplier or a client to say to agree properly on when you need to get paid, right? In this netting cycle, when you open it, do the payment terms need to be exactly the same across all the group's entities or are the payments due throughout the cycle, but the beneficiaries need to wait for the closing of the cycle? How does it work here? Because entities might have to wait and then it's put in jeopardy their cash flows, right? How does it work? Yeah, it's it's up to um, the company to decide what invoices that they're going to uh, interface. So if you're payables based, the payer has the option to block any invoice they do not want to pay in that cycle. Mm -hmm. uh, and because if they did, it could you know increase the disputes. But if you're receivables based, that's where they would be able to block any invoices that they're not ready to pay as well. So it's really a case by case basis. Um, most of the clients are interfacing with their ERP. So they can send the parameters or the date that they want to grab, like a due date, for example. They mm -hmm. can they can uh, filter all those invoices they want to bring into the process based on that due date. And that's how they can control the terms because that due date is going to be set up based on the terms that are agreeable for that those two parties. So then you can choose which invoice you include into the cycle or not, but then you don't have a, a netting process that takes into account everything, right? You just cherry it's pick which invoices. Um, it, yeah, okay. selective based on the due date, where the due date is taking into account the terms that have been established in when you set up the relationship between the vendor and the entity. Super clear. And so typically, just uh, for our information, how long... I mean, what's the length of a typical netting cycle then? Is it 10 days, 30 days, three months? One, one calendar month, unless the organization's on like a 5-4-4, and then they adopt their accounting cycle. But if their accounting cycle's calendar, it's, it's usually a month. And it closes up on the last business day of that month and typically settles that same day as well. But you can be flexible with settling the next business day. But more, uh, more than not, it's going to be at the end of the day. Uh, end of the month, sorry. What are the typical challenges prior to implementing anything? Because I guess um, you're holding for us the, the specificity of the implementation um, that we can't wait for. But what are the challenges prior to that? So why would you want to implement the netting in the first place? Yeah, uh, sure, I can answer that. Uh, so most of the clients or companies that implement 
uh, netting are large multinational uh, companies with a very complex legal structure with intercompany balances across many countries and currencies. And they, they're going to face uh, several challenges prior to implementing a netting that they're trying to solve for. One could be around large payment volumes. So they have a high bank transaction fees, they have settlement risk, they have FX payment costs. So they want to address that. And the way to address that is to reduce the payment volumes. There could be, uh, because we're dealing with, let's say, 50 countries, 80 countries, there could be an inefficient use of resources where there's a high manual effort to enter and release payments. There's a time-consuming GL posting process. Uh, anytime that you uh, introduce manual effort, you're gonna, it's going to be error-prone. So some of this uh, reasoning to implement would be uh, an efficiency play just to get more efficiency out of the resources that you have. And then one of the final areas would be under the tax and legal compliance area. Intercompany invoices may not be settled within the payment terms, as we just were talking about. Yeah. And also for FX payment costs, uh, just to reduce those, the netting process will reduce those greatly. So those are the three major uh, areas. Okay. Okay, that's super clear. And to come back to one of the things you mentioned earlier, uh, settling physically and internally, can you can you walk us through what the difference is here and what company would rather go for? Yeah, sure. And uh, you don't have to pick one or the other. You do per participant, but you can have a hybrid across your whole program. So multilateral netting is going to sum and convert each entity's transactions, payments into a single local currency. And that's going to be the amount they have to pay or they have to receive from the netting center. So once they calculate that amount, there's two options to settling it. Uh, you can settle the monthly pay or two or the receive two uh, amount. You can settle it internally if you have an existing in-house banking structure. So this will eliminate the need for an, an actual wire to go out of the participant's bank account in their base currency or out of the netting center's physical bank account and base currency. So if you have the option to settle internally, that's the ideal uh, scenario but that would require an in-house bank and a netting to work side by side. Okay. There, there are limitations to settling internally. Some countries, uh, for example, Taiwan, Singapore, and China, they don't permit settlement on the in-house bank accounts. So in these cases, the payment must be made physically. Uh, and most TMS, treasury management systems should support either of those methods. Um, I see a combination. There's some companies that just choose to settle everything physically. Uh, but if you have that in-house bank power, it's it's definitely worth using. Again, you're reducing your physical payments. Okay. Um, but then, sorry, being a bit the, the devil's advocate here, or I'm not sure of my English expression, but then you create an intercompany loan, right? Because one entity will still owe money to another. You You still have something to settle, no? Yeah, so it's not uh, necessarily an intercompany loan. It is a it's an increase to my IHB balance or a decrease to my IHB balance. But when, we say, when we say when we say loan, it's more of an interco movement as opposed to a loan. Typically has terms and conditions. This is just mm -hmm. a, an increase of ten grand or a decrease of ten grand to my balance, depending on the direction that it's going. <laughs> so it's no different. It's no different from taking a loan, right? Like a ZBA or 
uh, another mm -hmm. movement such as that. It's just additional money that should factor into your overall balance because if you're a positive, uh, you're going to be receiving interest. If you're negative, you're going to be paying interest. So these amounts, the netting amounts at the end of the month would factor into that interest settlement. Okay, so you have on top of your netting cycle, you keep track of the balances. If you're settling internally, you keep track of the balances, negative or positive, between the entities. And you need to pay interest as well on top of that. But the payment of this interest would be taking form with the physical transaction, right? Or do you also include that into the netting? That uh, So once this monthly amount is calculated, mm -hmm. the part's netting. Netting shuts down. And that movement or settlement just goes into the in-house bank as just another regular uh, interco transaction. Okay. So it's, it's either an obligation or a receipt that you'll receive against your in-house bank account. And that interest, um, interest would be calculated by the in-house bank and the in-house bank would pay uh, withholding tax if, if it applies. Mm -hmm. It would either settle the interest physically or it also has the option to settle it internally or basically capitalize it, which would be adding it back or subtracting it from the balance further. Okay, that's uh, that's rather clear. Greg, what's a what's an in-house bank? I've never heard of an in-house bank before. What does it take yeah. to have an in-house bank? Uh, yeah, so it could be another topic for another day, but it, um, <laughs> it is um, it's a a method that companies use to make best use of their own money. So. They'll set up uh, an in-house bank and an in-house bank is going to operate just like a regulatory bank without the fees, without the interest. It's going to use the corporation's money as a whole and you're going to have a position with the bank. So let's say you're entity A and you have $10 million excess. The bank is going to take that from you and use it for obligations that other uh participants need. So if you had 10, 10 million euro, somebody needs four, they're going to transfer that four to that entity. And then everyone think of it. I like this analogy as a checkbook. I have an opening position. I have ins and outs all throughout the month. And then I have an ending position. That ending position is not as it's my position with the in-house bank. So if I'm long, I would get interest paid to me. If I was short, I would pay interest. So from the bank's perspective, they're just grabbing all the money, pulling it together and transferring it out. You can get sophisticated models that might do things like payment on behalf of, receipt on behalf of. So a payment on behalf of or POBO, that's where corporate is making all the payments on behalf of the subsidiary. So they don't have to get accounts in those various currencies. And then they're just being charged um, that amount against their balance that they owe to the bank. Hopefully so, that makes it clear. <laughs> no, uh, so so it's it's not like you fulfill all of those transactions with a partner bank. You you really just are you're so big you could be a bank yourself. Yeah, it's all your money, um, so yeah. you don't have but between so different entities. I, yeah, there's a lot of benefits. Um, similar to netting where I don't want subsidiary A going out to a bank and saying that they need 10 million mm -hmm. uh, of a certain currency because they're going to have to pay 
uh, a markup on that where I have 10 million euro, I can give them without having that external either loan or paying a, a fee for that. So that's making the best use of the capital that the, the organization has. Yeah. Yeah. And so ju just to add a little bit of that, and again, um, Craig, correct me if I'm wrong, but the in-house bank would be basically having a group of such a size that when you properly centralize all the processes, all the cash, when you have a proper netting system in place and so on, you can have one entity or a few that are dedicated to act as the bank of the group and will have the same functions and will be able to lend money or borrow money to and from different entities within the group, whilst of course optimizing the interest payments here because you do not pay an external party, which would be an external bank, but then the different entities of the group. Is that Yeah, right? think of the bank as the center. So they mm -hmm. would control everything. You can, uh, you can have one bank or you can have multiple banks. So if it's a large organization, sometimes you'll have a bank in the US and they'll service all the US accounts. Uh, you'll have a bank in Euro uh, Europe and they'll service all the Europe accounts. Asia, same thing. Uh, but you could get away with one bank, uh, but the in-house bank is the one that holds all the chips. So they're they're paying out, they're receiving, and they're coordinating all that those movements. Uh, it's similar to netting in a way, uh, except that it usually involves a lot of external transfers as opposed to uh, internal. Okay. And if you have the two together, that's where you leverage the power of the in-house bank because now I can settle to the IHB and I don't send a single payment out unless I have one of those restricted entities or countries. I think, Gil, we do need to do a dedicated episode on this, indeed, because my, my concept of what a bank is is being blown apart right now. It's a fascinating topic, and uh, yeah, definitely we'll dig into that. I guess. So so going back again to another uh, term that you used, uh, Craig, earlier, uh, you said something about payables-based netting and receivables-based netting. What, can you help us understand what those are? What yeah, are so these are, um, these are just two approaches to upload invoices you can either do it from the ap perspective or you can do it from the ar perspective when you're doing it from the payables uh, the payee who's the receiver is is the one that is inputting or interfacing the invoices so they control the settlement uh in the netting cycle most netting centers are run on a payables basis because it's a simple and effective way uh, to reduce the cost of making external payments. And the payer usually has the option, like I was mentioning, to block any invoice that they do not want to pay in the current cycle, uh, which can lead to uh, increased disputes, but it's it's an allowable event. And receivables-based netting, this is where the payer is the one inputting or in, in interfacing the invoices so they control what is set in the netting cycle. And it's based on uh, sales uh, sales receipts so this is a little different approach and in my experience not too often uh do a does a company go down this path they're usually going to go payables because it's hard to control the the receivables where payables we know we have it out there we know the data on it and it's a lot more uh more it's a better approach in my view but so Craig, sorry, huh? we, <laughs> we yeah. challenge every every single answer, but it's, it's just to, to the interview because that, that's super interesting. Um, 
the AP of an entity is the AR of another, right? What one entity needs to pay is what another needs to receive. And since we are within the same group, we are talking about the same thing here in the end, because if I need to pay you, Craig, um, mm -hmm. I have an account payable towards your account and you have an account receivable towards me. But so if we are within the same group, whomever input this invoice, it will be the same at the end, no? What's the nuance that I'm not seizing here? Yeah, I think... Um... I think the payable is a lot more reliable and predictable because the receivable, it's going to fluctuate based on when somebody decides to pay it, where when you establish the payable side, you know the due date, you know it's sound, you know you can almost rely that it's going to happen, where receivables is just not as predictable. Uh, it's not as easy to interface. Okay, I, so I hear your argument. I don't have the strong answer for what. No, 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 that makes sense. That makes sense. So, uh, how is the AR, the account receivable, materialized exactly? Because indeed, an account payable is the invoice that I receive, um, and that I, that I need to pay. But the AR would be the sales receipt, for instance, the one you mentioned before. Yeah, it could, it could be a sales receipt. It could be no. money that are outside of uh, the internal process. Mm -hmm. No, that makes sense. Okay. Let's see Whereas the payable is just that. It's the in, only the interco payments with a specific mm -hmm. due date. So now I can filter on interco and I can filter on due date. And I know I have the right set of data to introduce. That's clear. Thank you. Yeah. Um, yeah, another question we had um, is what are the key considerations when you set up a netting program? So you talked about all those different ones, right? So the settlements, the bilateral, the multilateral. Um, why would the company do that? But so let's say I'm a massive company and I want to set up a netting program. What are the key considerations I should think of? Yeah, so there's, there's four primary ones. And what I'm talking about now is just when I'm establishing my program. It's not the mechanics of operating it. It's the precursor of getting a, a cycle in place. So the first one would be technology. Uh, second would be choosing a net, netting center location. The third would be the tax impacts, uh, as well as the uh, regulatory issues. So from a technology standpoint, technology doesn't get it all done, but it's a key enabler for multilateral netting. I have to have a product that can perform all the functions that I need. I need the ability to generate preliminary statements, final statements in an automated way. Uh, I need the system to be able to support you know, payables or receivables. Uh, I need it to be accessible by the participants if necessary. So keep picking that piece of software evaluating that piece of software specifically as it pertains to netting and then ultimately selecting it is a key first step just making sure that you have the technology in place to actually do this uh, it's not something you would do in excel for example and then the next thing this is where you're going to have to get tax involved but choosing the netting center location so based on the, where you choose to locate your uh, netting center, this could have potential tax drawbacks or benefits. So the, the tax team needs to analyze it, um, make recommendations. Where I usually see the Treasury Center being located is in Luxembourg, uh, Switzerland, the UK, Netherlands, Ireland. So essentially tax-friendly locales. Uh, it also depends on 
where you're located uh that's a driver as well but picking that spot is key uh the tax imp impacts in certain countries uh, could allow you or could make you pay withholding taxes as well so you have to be aware of that and then there's various regulatory issues at the local level that define what countries can uh, participate in netting and what restrictions are on those participants. So some allow you to participate, but you have to provide reporting to the central bank, for example. Mm. Other countries, you can't participate at all. So that tax and legal review would go through each one of your participants or entities and determine who's in, who's out, and then how you structure your, your, your program. So those are the key ones. Um, there's other considerations as you go to implement, but to start with, I would focus on those. Okay. Um, so most of them are crystal clear um, on top of that. I'd, I'm not sure we want to dig into the tax and legal considerations of each location, but there'll be a, a small question on my side will be, you mentioned the technology aspect, which was actually the first one I think you mentioned. Is it something typically that you can do in a TMS or in your treasury management system, or are you looking at more specialized tools because of the complexity of it? Yeah, a good uh, point. So most TMSs can accommodate netting. So mm -hmm. Kariba, Quantum, FIS Quantum, mm -hmm. uh, G Treasury actually recently just bought Coprocess, which was a strong netting product. So they're in the process of incorporating that into their TMS. And then for those that are implementing S, uh, SAP, they ha also have a netting module uh, within their, their offering. But a TMS, uh, most of the popular TMSs will be able to handle the netting. That doesn't uh, mean that you don't evaluate and run through your test cases, but they, they uh, you wanna talk to references, make sure that they're actually working on it and doing it so uh, yeah tmss would be able to handle this the right ones yeah super clear thank you so craig you mentioned like um a few different departments beyond treasury we had um mike richards on our show uh, a few weeks ago who is a treasury recruiter and one of the lines that came out of that was that treasury is a lot of interdepartment play uh, you really touch every single department in a company so uh, with that in mind, you mentioned legal, you mentioned tax, you've also mentioned tech now. Um, who are all the different parties involved in setting up a netting process? Sounds like it's more than just treasury themselves. Yeah, it's great to uh, lead in for this because the accounting team has to be involved. So they're going to be responsible for monitoring, entering, and reconciling intercompany balances and payments. So they need input to the process. They won't actually be the ones executing the netting, uh, but they'll be uh, taking those transactions and having to reconcile uh, the interco bowels as well as the payments. <laughs> then a big, big part of this is getting corporate and international tax involved. They need to sign off on the netting structure, uh, actually recommend the netting structure, and they'll be the ones that would research all the tax regulations, determine who can and cannot participate in the program. They'll also be reaching out to local teams because there could be some local regulations that are at a lower level than the country regulation. So they have to be a strong partner in this. You're also gonna need the financial operations and ERP team. A, a small component of this is to integrate your invoices normally from an ERP 
into Kariba or into Quantum, uh, either at an individual invoice level or an aggregated level. So there's a, an element of uh, data exchange there that has to take place. Then uh, we can't get away from having to drag in legal. So legal would be drafting up the netting agreements, setting the terms and conditions, and any other ongoing document requirements that are at the country or local level. <laughs> and then finally, um, Treasury would be there for managing the netting cycle, executing the settlements, both internal and external, doing the FX management, the trade execution, uh, monitoring and compliance. And they're a big factor into the technology selection along with uh, any IT involvement. So it's essentially the whole, whole company. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, that's how it sounds. <laughs> but that makes sense, right? Since it's account payables and account receivables, you need the, the sales and the accounting party. If you want a proper netting center, you need to consult the tax and legal department. So that's, yeah, that makes sense. Definitely. Greg, all this sounds like a nightmare to forecast your cash because you don't really know what's going on until until later on like it's, it's a whole because you net everything at the end it, it, what's the implications of this in cash forecasting overall for a company again a topic uh, that we've discussed previously and highlight is an important aspect of corporate treasury overall yeah so the the interco movements don't really impact the the forecasting in a big way because these are all washes they're essentially a net net transaction from a forecasting standpoint so the forecasting is going to be driven by the corporate treasuries function that they have in place where you know a lot of times they'll collect estimates from uh from the subsidiaries sometimes they'll collect interco but on their overall forecast it should net out right because one person's going to say i'm expecting a million well i'm a, i'm sending a million you know so there's no real true forecast implications so okay. Correct. Yeah. Okay. Is it you, you you can still report it if you want the visibility by entity, but from a consolidated standpoint, it's it's a net. And so this is because the intercompany movements are in the end rather small in terms of volumes compared to the overall volumes of transactions, or. Um, they could be large, but let's say you had a forecast on entity A that says I'm getting a million dollars. So they're mm -hmm. looking for a million. Entity B is going to have a forecast that says I'm paying a million. So from a consolidation standpoint, it's a zero. Okay. Yeah, indeed. Makes sense. <clears throat> um, and again, just to uh, <laughs> to dig a little bit in the details and out of curiosity, are there certain industries or type of companies that would have much more volumes of intercompany transactions than other I, I cannot think of any that's that's why I'm, I'm a bit curious about it yeah uh like the company i'm going to highlight later um had ninety thousand invoices per month and it's mainly because they're they do have consumer products mm -hmm. so that churns a lot of in and outs throughout you know eighty five thousand different customers mm. so it's um it, it's a case by case though but if you look at getting detailed invoices there could be hundreds of thousands so you want uh in those cases where there's extreme volume you would just summarize those and bring them in at a high level 